Welcome to the Brew Files from Experimental Brewing, our quick hit series where we focus on fundamental aspects of brewing, including styles, techniques, and recipes. More brew, more flavor, more story, less time, less ukulele. As you know, the current pandemic has made things go a bit pear-shaped, but some things still need to happen, like the Maltose Falcons Mayfair going on since at least 1978. Normally held in the spring, we pushed it back and into a virtual judging segment in the late summer. In this episode, recorded at the October Maltos Falcons members meeting, I'm talking with two of our Best of Show winners and the Best of Show judges to discover what they did to make award-winning beer and what the judges liked. Program note, you'll hear us talk about three beers, but one brewer couldn't join us and the audio was a bit crufty during that segment, so more on his beer later. But first, a message from our sponsors. Family-owned Atlantic Brew Supply is the biggest homebrew shop in the Southeast. No gimmicks, no multinational corporate overlords, and no BS. Unique ingredients from local suppliers, including malt from neighboring Artisan Malthouse Epiphany Craft Malts and award-winning recipe kits, including the Toll, Raleigh Brewing Company's GABF-winning Imperial Oatmeal Stout, Plus, we've got pro-level equipment and the best-in-cask supply equipment from sister companies ABS Commercial and Cask Supply. Malts, extracts, and more, all available by the ounce, an on-site calculator to help you craft your best brew, same-day order processing, and guaranteed two-day shipping for East Coast customers. Get 15% off your first order when you use the coupon code BREWFILES at checkout at Atlantic Brew Supply. Getting accurate measurements of your beer is one of the keys to improving your brewing. The Pro Series Hydrometers from Brewing America will help you help your beer. These American-made NIST traceable hydrometers are accurate, easy to read, and the kits come with a cleaning brush and cloth and a borosilicate test flask that uses half the sample size of most flasks. That means less beer for testing and more beer for you. Brewing America is a small, family-owned business of husband and wife veterans, so when you buy a Brewing America hydrometer, you're not only getting a great piece of equipment, you're supporting the people who support America. Brewing America hydrometers are available on Amazon or at www.brewingamerica.com. This episode is brought to you by Brewers Publications, publisher of Historical Brewing Techniques, The Lost Art of Farmhouse Brewing. Purchase your copy of Historical Brewing Techniques at BrewersPublications.com. goody so i'm calling this a, a case study in two and a half parts and you'll figure out why when we get into this but i just wanted to walk through a couple of the details here real quick so the maltos falcons mayfair has run for at least 42 years uh so since at least 1978 it's the oldest competition in the country it may even be older than that but 78 is about as far back as i can push it in the record and so because it's that old we weren't going to let a global pandemic stop us and we had to figure out how we were going to keep this going so we did a couple of interesting things here with this competition 
Uh, one is we did limited throwback categories. We based the classes on what the classes were for the 1979 Mayfair, which is the first year we actually have the, the records for. But the reason why I'm saying it's at least from 1978 is because they made the contest sound like it was an ongoing affair at that point. The classes for 1979 were light ale, light lager, dark ale, dark lager, stout or bock as one category, and unusual. And then the light ale, light lager, dark ale, dark lager category was also split into all grain versus extract. So we didn't do that this year. And also to recognize where the uh, the whole hobby has moved in, this, in the time since 1979, we added two other categories. We added hoppy and we added belgiany. In, in order to also make this a really sort of amenable to the times, we did limit it to 100 entries. You guys know that in most years, regular years, our competition gets anywhere from 300 to 500 entries. Uh, that's going to be kind of hard to do when you can't get judges together. So we limited to 100 entries. And then we actually did distributed judging. So we either did things remote via Zoom, like the like we're doing right now, or we had groups of judges who basically judged in a pod. So they, they trusted each other. They got together and they did their own social distance judging together. And because of that, actually, we also had to include, we had to up the limit, or sorry, up the number of bottles to three this year as opposed to two, which is what we had been doing, just to allow us to have that one extra bottle for remote judging. So Gary, you're up on deck first because you were the second runner-up best of show. So you are from Foam. And so thank you for you guys uh, continuing the trend of homebrewers coming up with bad puns for your club names. (laughs) Fair enough. Well, before we get into the beer itself, why don't you tell everybody about you, how long you've been brewing and uh, what do you normally like to brew? I first started brewing in uh, 2016. Uh, We were living in Chicago at the time. And then at the uh, very beginning of 2018, I retired and we relocated down to uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma area. Um, And at that point, I had been doing all grain, you know, on a propane burner. And I ramped up and went three vessel electric Herms system. You know, when I first started out, I was doing all the usuals, the IPAs and um, Irish stouts and red ales, Irish reds, that type of thing. But as I started uh, doing judging at competitions, you know, we have a competition here and there's another big one that I've been at in Kansas City. I realized that there's a, a much bigger world out there in terms of beer types. So uh, I started to expand my horizon, started doing porters and browns. Of course, this wee heavy, uh, I did rye wine, which, you know, I um, submitted also and also trying different techniques, um, you know, decoctions, you know, I made the syrup on the wee heavy, um, you know, just trying to do different things, different beers, you know, right now in the uh, fermenters, I have a porter, my third or fourth time brewing that one. I've had some pretty good success with that one at competitions. And I have a uh, American IPA, which I don't do a lot of, but um, you know, I like to have one on tap. And then on tap, I have a Goza, as well as a Belgian Blonde that just came out of the fermenter a couple of days ago. So kind of a broad range of beer types. Awesome. So, well, and that makes some sense given that this beer actually got some really good scores. So let's break it down. It's the Kilt No Underwear. You went into the Dark Ale category with a Wee Heavy. Do you, do you right. like Wee Heavy? I have, I have had, well, it's, again, it's a, it was a passion thing just to try bigger beers. I do five-gallon batches, and mm-hmm. um, this one pushed my 10-gallon mash tun to the limit. I've had a couple beers, bigger beers, where I've had to split them, do a dual mash, single boil. But I'd had uh, Wee Heavies. 
I'd actually been able to get my hands on, we were cruising around United Kingdom and got my hands on some skull splitter from Orkney Brewery, uh, which is identified, you know, by G- BJCP as a typical style or typical example. Um, then, of course, I was able to find it here now. It's distributed in the U.S. And yeah, it's just a, a style of beer that I like. I like the big mall, low hop, a little bit sweet, but, you know, not stout sweet kind of right. beer. Well, and so let's look at this malt bill because, holy crap, that's a malt bill. (laughs) 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 All right. We've got Golden Promise mixed with two row and six row. And I know in your notes you said that you didn't remember why you did that, but it worked. Uh, Aromatic, so a big biscuity toasty thing. And then you got two of the special roasts. So you got Brees Extra Special and the Brees Special Roast. I don't think I've ever tried the extra special. What is it? Well, that's just a uh, 130 SRM malt. And it was, I, I told you, I based this off a recipe. And I'm not, I'm going to mispronounce this. Kopf Spalter Strong Scotch Ale. And that was in the grain belt. And that was one of those um, malts that I could not get at the local LHBS. And I think I ordered it online for more beer. Mm-hmm. Or one of the online um, retailers, um, you know, just enough to make this beer, but uh, you know, it was, it was a special order kind of thing. Like I say, not something that's normally uh, available. But all the rest were available at the uh, local homebrew store. And then you got melon malt, so a little of that extra umami, meaty character in your malt. Uh, some C60, so some good old uh, caramel, and then some chocolate rye. I don't think I've ever seen a chocolate rye in a in a wee heavy. Do you just like that rye character? You already said you did a rye wine. Well, yeah, that you know, I like the rye. Um, and the local homebrew store just happened to have a chocolate rye in stock, and I figured, you know, for color, because that's what 240 S- SRM. Mm-hmm. Why not? You know, it, it doesn't hurt. Gives a little bit of extra backbone character. And certainly it helps with the color. Uh, again, I don't think I've seen a, a malt bill this this long and complicated in, in a while. These days, I think most of the time you see this when you're looking at uh, hop bills. And speaking of which, let's let's take a look at the, the hop bill there because uh, the hop bill itself is relatively straightforward. Some CTZ for bittering and some fuggles at, at knockout. Um, yeah, very, very low. I was looking for very low bitterness on this one. Well, and I think if people take a look at the statistics on this, you've got... Uh, what, a 1083 original gravity and 24 IBUs. Now, this I did think was interesting as well. So you did a single infusion mash at 149 degrees for 75 minutes. Were you, were you pushing that low on the, on the mash because you wanted to really make sure whatever would ferment out, would ferment out? Yeah. I mean, like I said, I, I, like, I like this beer because it's a little bit on the sweet side, but I didn't want it finishing at, I'm trying to remember what the heck I finished at. You know, I finished at 1016, 1014 after uh, crashing it. I didn't want a 1030, 1035 beer. Uh-huh. Uh, I just thought it would be too sweet. So I, I pushed the mash down a little bit and, um, you know, try to get a drier beer, which I did. You know, for considering the starting gravity, it was pretty, uh, pretty um, aggressive. Well, yeah, and I think you see a lot of those, the barley wines and the wee heavies where they do have a higher residual gravity. I, mean, I think like when I was first looking, I was like, oh, okay, this will be like about 10, 20-ish or so. And then to see that you got down those extra few points there, I think shows some really good fermentation mechanics. And you used the Imperial A31 Tartan, which is that a Bellhaven uh, strain or or McEwan's? Oh, gosh, you know, on my head, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's definitely intended for uh, Scottish ales. Um, so I'm sure it's out of some brewery. One would hope with a name like Tartan. (laughs) Yeah, you would think. (laughs) And what what did you do to prepare the yeast for a beast of a beer? 
I actually only did a, a two liter uh, starter with this one. Um, I use um, um, Beersmith, and I've had real good luck. I know I've, some of the guys in the uh, and gals in the in the club a little bit skeptical of their of the way they uh, he does uh, yeast counts, but uh, mm-hmm. I've had real good luck, with it and, and I trust it when it says do a two liter. Or one liter or even a three liter it's always worked out for me of course it depends on the age of the yeast as well right well and i think as i've talked about in the past it's like if you have enough vital yeast you can get away with a lot so yeah if you're making a good starter well and that's the one thing i we've i've had discussions with some you know better brewers than me in in the club and you know when they start talking about under pitching and over pitching on purpose to get a specific effect i mean that i'm not there yet so I just try to try to hit the mark on what Beersmith recommends for, uh, you know, which is just the standard uh, yeast count. Also, yeah. not, not, to, not to challenge your colleagues from your club, but uh, overpitching and underpitching at the homebrew scale is, is actually not super easy to do. So uh, to, to underpitch, you would have to pitch very, very little yeast. Well, it, it tends to be the guys that, you know, like Belgian beers and, and um, you know, where, where they want to really stress the yeast. And you know, make it work hard and sweat a little bit, and, and get some of those interesting flavors. But that's why I'm not worried about underpitching, overpitching. I don't particularly care to set up mm-hmm. a microbiology lab in the garage right now. Um, well, also, I was curious. Um, so, did you do like a stronger gravity uh, starter? Um, no, just a straight up. Um, so 1040. 1040? 1040? Yeah, 1040, 1036. Yeah, I use um, um, you know the canned uh, wort that you know that the. the um, online folks are selling now uh, proper was the one I used and, yep. and um, it works as I just hate that's one of the things I always hated was preparing starters with uh, dry malt extract um, it's long it's it's tedious and I tend to do a lot of boilers when I do that and then last we'll talk the the water you're using my favorite way to deal with water which is uh, brewing water and you used what I think is a ap- very appropriate uh, very appropriate water profile for this which is brown and full like one of the problems is sometimes people wanted to go and do a, an Edinburgh profile. And the problem is which well from Edinburgh, because the water changes drastically across that city. Well, you know, and, and I had that issue when I first started um, going to um, RO water in Chicago. I mean, it varies day to day because, you know, they've got three or four different pumping stations in the city and you never know what's coming out of your tap. You know, you do a, uh, get an analysis done and within two days, it's not valid anymore. So that, you know, they are a water, build it up. I've done the research. I won't do by city. I know um, uh, for the brewing water, they've got city profiles, uh, but I'll do research. I'll, you know, say, okay, what's a, a decent water profile for an American brown? And, and just kind of look at, and it's all different. Uh, everybody does something different, but, you know, pick one that looks reasonable. And, um, and, on, and then also compare it to some of the standard profiles that brewing water has. Just to put it out there for people, the brown profile, that brown full, it balances really that chloride sulfite ratio. You know, kind of keep everything together. And it makes some sense, right? Because you want to have a malt presence, but you don't necessarily, you want to have a little bit of that sulfate in there to just kind of undercut it. Well, and it's a very low sulfate chloride number. I mean, it's uh, 50 on the sulfate and 59 was the target. Or yep. Actually, that was the profile. I would say, yeah, there's the target as well. Let's also talk because you did use one of my favorite techniques in making a wee heavy here. You you made a a, a separate kettle syrup kettle kettle caramel. Yep, I, I you know that was 
you know, based on the research and everything, you know, it's kind of, it wasn't in the original recipe I looked at, but, you know, doing the research, that was just something a lot of people do, particularly with the Wee Heavy. So I figured, what the heck, give it a try. And, you know, it makes, like everything else, it makes for a longer brew day. Um, my problem was I was boiling it because I was afraid to go in the house because the, um, uh, the article I'd found about doing the syrup said you got to be really, really careful because it might uh, boil over. And that's the reason I got kicked out of the house in the first place was having a couple of boil overs on the kitchen stove. So I tried to do it outside in the garage on a little camp stove. And, and I had a hard time maintaining the heat, getting the heat to it. Um, I think if I was going to do this again, I'd, I'd look into getting a small propane burner just to get enough heat to the thing. Because it took me a long time to get down to that one and a half quarts. And it never got particularly thick. Do you remember what the first runnings were, like what the gravity was? No, I didn't. I, I suspect it was probably in the um 1075 1080 range at mm -hmm. least right and so i mean you're doing a lot of concentration there, but i mean you're still not getting up to syrup levels of sugar so yeah because this was the, the mash was six and a half gallons of water and, and that was you know that's a 20 some pound um grain bill you know mm -hmm. so it's a one and a quarter um quarts per pound or pounds yeah quarts per pound um but it was you know for me that's a lot of it's a lot of water in the mash ton, but you know, it wasn't, it wasn't too much. It was close, but it wasn't too much. Now, and then let's touch on the last thing here, which is the ferment in your notes. You had 60 degrees ferment for two days and then one degree per uh, one degree up per day for 10 days. So to get up to 70 degrees yep. over 12 days, and then you crash it down to 34 for two days. So what are we looking at there? We're looking at 14 days start to yep. finish here in the ferment. Threw it in on the 19th of April and uh, kegged it on um, the 2nd of May. Okay. And for people who aren't aware, I mean, the competition itself, I mean, I think what we took the entries in in September, then, so you had, was that four months? Four or five months, months, yeah. Yeah. I kegged it, carbonated it, um, bottled it, and then uh, keep it in a closet. So it's, it was conditioning at, uh, not conditioning, but... Uh, sitting at room temperature. What what changed in it? The alcohol. I mean, it, it, I think the alcohol is a lot more subtle. I mean, it's a 10.4% beer by my calculation anyway. Mm -hmm. um, and, um, you know, there you could really, really taste the alcohol when, when I first caked it, mm -hmm. got it carbonated. And now I feel like the alcohol is really back down. It's not, you know, jump up and slap you in the face with uh, alcohol at this point. So, you know, so the malt's a little bit smoother and, you know, I think it helps to taste less. You don't get any of that uh, burn, alcohol burn. Well, and speaking of those uh, tasting notes, let's, uh, this, these were some of the judging comments uh, that I gathered together from the score sheets. You know, one of the nice things about electronic score sheets is I can go see everybody's comments. And first thing I want to note is that you had an average score in the first round of 41 points. So that's, that's a pretty banging score. Um, it, what's the highest you've ever gotten as a score? I'd say about 41. Yeah, I, think, I think I might have had a beer beer at 42 at one point, but my beers tend to go in the 36 to 40 range. So mm -hmm. I was quite pleased um, with, with the scores on this one. All right. And so I, I loved this comment in the overall, a fascinating blend of flavors that take turns becoming the dominant feature at any one point. A big, big beer that could use a ski lodge around it. <laughs> it's not a snitching beer, that's for sure. Uh, some of the other notes, just to summarize them, were uh, rich and malty with creme brulee aromas, decocted or a longer boil evident. So I think that's where you're getting that uh, kettle syrup in there. 
And then uh, some notes of apple esters and a potential note of acetaldehyde with some desire on the part of the judges to see a uh, less back-end bitterness, which is kind of surprising given that's only 24 IBUs. Yeah, and, you know, and, and I, I read that. And, of course, I, you know, I've tried the beer a couple times since then. And, and my issue is I'm a little bit blind to acetaldehyde. Um, you, you know, even as a judge, you know, it'll be one of those things where a couple of us will be judging a beer and, and we'll get down and, and then start conferring. And, and the other judge will say, yeah, boy, acetaldehyde all, all day long. And I'm like, I just I don't get it. Um, so that's one I struggle with. But, you know, when it's like anything else, when you're when somebody tells you what something should taste like or smell like, you start to taste and smell that. So I do get that. I do get the, uh, the acetaldehyde a little bit. The other problem is whenever you start to get like apple, uh, apple flavors and apple aromas, sometimes it's hard for people to draw the line between acetaldehyde and um, the regular <laughs> esters. <laughs> yeah, Bernard, you're waving to say that you. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And I, I forget, do we have any of our best of show judges on? I don't know if John Aitchison was going to make it. Okay. But Bernard. I'm, yeah, I'm here. Uh, I, I found it to be very, very clean. Uh, and I did get that malt depth. You know, I, I could tell there was a long boil or either that or a, a um, decoction or possibly the syrup boil, which is which I typically do myself. And uh, just really spot on and clean. It was very easy drinking. It could, you know, it could be dangerous. Best sort of big beer is the dangerous ones. Uh, Bernard, did you have anything to say? Yeah, uh, from what I remember of it, it was first of all, it was delicious uh, and uh, really like like it's been said already, very malty. Um, I do remember very low bitterness. Um, and uh, by the way, so speaking of that, I was wondering: is it possible that the judge from the first round might have uh, um, thought of astringency as bitterness? Because I see you have a couple of dark grains in that beer. And potentially that might have created some astringency and that could have led to an impression of bitterness. So that's, that's just a thought. But um, the, the one thing though, that I remember is that uh, I could definitely smell the alcohol. It was, uh, it was very boozy, not in a unpleasant way, but I was like, Oh wow. Like that's, that's big. It's like, like when you can smell it and when it, you know, I remember the warming feeling in my mouth. Yeah. Very, very interesting. Well, one thing, um, you talk about the astringency. You know, I had the two very dark malts, the uh, the extra special and the chocolate rye, and I held those back in the mash. They went in in like the last 15, 20 minutes of the mash. Got um, it. Just I've been trying to do to, to battle that a little bit as well. You know, it's because they're only there for color and a little bit of flavor anyway. A lot of times, astringency to judges can read as bitterness because a lot of times we're thinking with beer, oh, this is going to be a bitter thing. Any Any other comments or questions about the nothing under the kilt. Again, I think there are some good techniques to take away from here. Like I've been an advocate and I know John's been an advocate for years of doing that first running boil to, to kind of concentrate some flavors. I think it's an awesome technique. I have an induction burner that I use here to just so I can do that sort of stuff. So you said you don't remember why you chose to add some six row barley to it. I wish I could, cause it's not even in the original recipe. I mean, this is going back to April and, um, you know, I know it's it's we we stock uh, six row at the uh, LHBS, and and I help out there every once in a while. You know, in, in the storefront, and very 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 seldom see any beer brewers uh, taking six row. I mean, the the whiskey guys love it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, buy it by the bag, but um, just wanted to give it a try. Any like rest for it or anything like that? So I'm curious, uh, how does that affect the mash or the extraction? 
Well, you know, I guess that's the thing with, with six row. People like it because it's got the uh, higher extraction ability. Uh, I can't think of the right technical term for it. Um, but, you know, you get more bang for your buck on the enzymes and everything. Um, you know, that just may very well have been what I was trying to do. I guess I, I wish I could remember back that far, but. Um, well, hey, you know, in lockdown, that, that may, uh, that may months might as well be decades. Um, been a lot, a lot of beer under the bridge since then. Yeah. Well, and just to point out, yeah, what you're thinking about is traditionally people have used six row because it has a higher enzyme content. So a higher Lintner value. It can convert more adjuncts. It can do more. It also has the advantage of having more whole material. If you're particularly worried about your lauder, uh, it can it can also uh, give you some more channels through there. Now, sometimes that's also a problem in terms of people picking up astringency from the the husk material as well. Scott, remind me. I, I think the the shop no longer carries six row, right? It used to for years. That's correct. We stopped carrying it uh, about four years ago, maybe. Yeah. Yeah, so if for any of the Falcons out there, if you want to get any six row, you're going to have to go and get it online. Well, you know, and, and I'd mentioned in my email to you um, about, uh, Drew, about um, the Golden Promise. And the reason is, the only reason it's 10 pounds of Golden Promise is I'd won that in a competition back at the beginning of the year. And um, so I had this 10 pounds of Golden Promise. I think, okay, what kind of beer do you use Golden Promise on? You know, it's a, it's a malt that you use in British style beers, UK beers. I said, okay, I'm going to throw it in. I just didn't want to buy more Golden Promise, so I went with the uh, the two-row and six-row to make up the rest of the mash bill. Well, and Golden Promise would be very appropriate for a Scottish-style beer, so it makes it makes perfect sense. Gary, thank you so much for for taking some time on a Sunday. I know uh, that's always a fun thing to do. No, I appreciate it. I appreciate the feedback, too. It's very helpful. So finally, best of show, annoyingly did not go to a Falcon. No, instead it went to a yeast cider by the name of Jeff. Jeff, say hi to everybody. Hey, how's it going? And Jeff is actually here in Pasadena with me. So Jeff won for something that is almost the exact opposite of the other two beers that we've been talking about, where the other two were big and chewy and malty and boozy and, and you know, kind of over the top. Jeff won for a German pills in the light lager category. And this was, you're calling it the Ella pills for a reason that we'll get into, right? Yep. I'm never good with naming things. <laughs> oh, hey, you, you don't have to be creative with names as long as you're creative with the beer. So Jeff, give everybody your, your background because I mean, I've known you for a good long while, but that's because I'm weird. <laughs> so um, I guess I've been homebrewing for, I think since 2008, maybe. And pretty soon after that, I started becoming a beer judge because um, I bought the, uh, idea that I would become a better brewer if I learned how to judge beers better. Mm -hmm. And so I'm a nationally ranked um, BGCP judge. I'm actually the assistant rep for the Western region um, located here in LA. Um, I'm also a certified mead judge and cider judge. Um, And I pretty much like brewing every type of beer. I've been playing, I like playing with different aspects of uh, the process or ingredients, which is actually how this beer came up. Um, I pretty much did everything new with this beer. So I'm surprised that, uh, <laughs> there wasn't a disaster, but, um, this is the first well, time I used tap water ever and brewing a beer. Um, first time I used this malt and first time I used this hop. So it was basically just a trial run to kind of get my bearings. So in other words, just beginner's luck. Yeah. <laughs> and, and Jeff, what do you do for a living that makes you like taking tests so much? 
<laughs> so I'm a PhD chemical engineer. And That's it. <laughs> yeah, I work in uh, making membranes. And so I work in the water industry. Oh, so in other words, you also have a, a leg up on the water, the water questions. There we yeah, go. Yeah, I kind of, I kind of get that stuff. All right. So let's dig in a little bit here on the Ella pills. According to the notes that you gave me, 10 gallons at 1046 and about 5.1% ABV, a 90-minute boil, and then 21 pounds of a Moravian pills malt that I have never heard of, and I'm not going to say those. <laughs> yeah, that's that's from the uh, uh, Monrovia Homebrew store. They um, went over to the Czech Republic, um, found this small malting company, and bought seriously trailerfuls of this malt. So uh, Libakovsky actually turned me onto it and kind of wanted to see what it was like, but on the homebrew scale before he did anything potentially on the commercial scale. So that's where that came from. So, and Lee, for people who don't remember, used to be the brewer at Eagle Rock and is now the brewer for, uh, I think it's party beer in West Adams. Yep. All right. And can you say this name? Uh, probably not. I think it's, <laughs> but I don't know. <laughs> Real quick on this. Is this an undermodified malt or is it a fully modified pills malt? Uh, it's fully modified um, okay. based on what um, information I got from them. All right. And so, again, it's this is just a... too, as well. So, oh, nice. So, a nice a traditional floor malted pills malt, although now more modified than would have been traditional. Very simple grain bill, which is always nice. <laughs> I mean, look, I mean, at the very least, it means you can just wing it off the top of your head. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, just pills malt. Yep. We got this. Now, talk to us about the hops. So the hops, I basically bought this hops from a sale with Yakima Valley hops, I think it was, and I had no idea what it was. Um, looking into it, it sounded like it'd be a great idea to throw in a Pilsner. So I just basically did a smash with this and uh, threw it all in there. Right. And so um, I tend to hop your beers nowadays. Um, Eric Garcia kind of, uh, I used to put way too many hops in early and they'd be, the beer would be um, like lipping a, licking a hop sack, according to them. Um, so I've learned to only put very little in initially and then do everything else in the whirlpool. So, um, oh, I see the, how I didn't say that earlier. It's about 15 minutes, um, at temperature in the whirlpool. Okay. So for people who aren't going to be able to see the screen, the reason that this is Ella pills is not only the pills malt, but it is nothing but Ella hops. Ella is a, a hop variety from Australia yep. and yeah, it has some of the kind of the noble characteristics to it along with some other things, and it all depends upon how you use it. And so you have one ounce of Ella at a stonking 16.9% alpha acid crazy. for 60 minutes. And right now, all the, all the Czech Zots are going, wait, how much alpha acid? <laughs> um, so one ounce of Ella at 60 minutes, three ounces of Ella at a whirlpool, you said, for 15 minutes. Did you, yep. did you drop the temperature at all, or is it just straight off the boil? It's straight off the boil and I throw it in instantly and just let it start um, kind of crashing down. And okay. probably about 10 minutes in, I start pulling it in through the uh, heat exchanger into the fermenter. All right. And then four ounces of Ella uh, as a dry hop, actually, and mm -hmm. three days at 45 degrees. So going for that colder, shorter dry hop. Yep. What did you get out of the Ella that you weren't expecting? Or, or what did you get out of the Ella just period? Well, I, so first of all, it's a lot more noble than I expected. I'm getting a lot of kind of spicy floral characters. Um, I am getting a little fruit, um, which is interesting, which I was kind of expecting that to be a little more dominant since it was an Australian hop. Mm -hmm. But it's actually a pretty clean hop, which I, um, uh, clean noble style hop, 
which mm-hmm. I'm actually pretty uh, excited about. I, I think I'd use it again easily in a Pilsner or a Saison or something. Well, and what I'm really curious about, I mean, so thinking from a typical home brewer's point of view of five gallons, I mean, that's four ounces of a fairly high alpha acid hop in a beer without a lot of room to hide right. that hop character. So I'm, uh, I'll be really curious when we go and we take a look at the, uh, the tasting notes. Uh, the other thing that's also non-traditional here, single infusion at 150 degrees for 90 minutes. I, I suspect somewhere in the background, John Aitchison is going, you should have decocted this. You know what? I love every German beer I decoct in general. Um, this one was more just about all the other things and I was lazy. But um, I always decoct pills, um, Hefeweizens, everything. Box. This is my lazy day. <laughs> German. Okay. It turns out it worked out well for you. And then uh, the water treatment you did, you, you got eight gallons in the mash and you, and you gave the pH. You were going for a higher end of the pH of so 5.5 using phosphoric acid to adjust down. Did you do anything with the water? You said earlier it was tap water. Yeah. Do- well, I, I ran it through a carbon filter just to get mm-hmm. the uh, chlorine out. And I do have a test to measure that it's less than like 0.1 or 0.2 uh, ppm of uh, total chlorine. What are you using to test that? Is that something available to the rest of us or only to you? Water yeah, no, it's, it's a kit that I bought. Um, uh, I think it's a Lamotte kit, actually. Okay. Um, I had to buy it. I, I think I bought it on Amazon or directly from Lamotte. But it's... Okay. Um, Little tablets you pop in, um, mm-hmm. changes pink. Um, you hold it up against a scale, and it gives you uh, the amount. And I'm, I'm pretty sure it's Lamont. Yeah, it, it would, that would make sense because uh, Lamont also makes the the Brew Lab and Brew Lab right. Plus kits that I think have that same stuff. Not in there actually. That's the, it. Kind of stunned me that it wasn't. But then I, I think I was wondering around their website on that and bought it. So otherwise, just pretty much straight Pasadena tap water. Yep just treated just to remove the chloramine. And I don't know about your particular area of Pasadena because I know that the water here in Southern California, uh, Gary, you were talking about the challenges of water in your area. Uh, Southern California water changes like neighborhood to neighborhood and season to season in awful ways. Um, And I know for me, like what I've found over time is I actually have to put a little distilled water into into my blend in order to get any of my pills or my cream ales, for instance, to not have a, that sort of salty character to it. So I'm really curious that, that this was just straight. Yeah, it's it. And I actually measured the um, composition of the water like a week uh, before I made this beer. And it definitely has a significant amount of sulfate in it. Um, mm-hmm. It's about 180 PPM of sulfate and a significant amount of bicarbonate, about 160 PPM, which is why I was battling the pH. Um, mm-hmm. And I stupidly put phosphoric acid instead of lactic because I didn't read the label. <laughs> Let me ask for you, what did, what did the sodium measure at? Sodium measured right around 80. Just yeah. yeah. See, that's, uh, yeah, mine's usually floating somewhere between 40 to 80. Yeah. And it drives me nuts in the, in the lighter beers. Yeah. All right. Let's move on here. Uh, yeast, you got two packs of the Bavarian lager. So the Y-Yeast 2206. Uh, that you did in a, a one gallon starter. That's a good solid lager strain. And yeah. then what I thought was interesting was if I read your notes correctly, you fermented this flat at 52 degrees for two weeks. It was basically about 10 days, 11 days, and I raised it up to 58. 
Mm -hmm. So not a massive amount, but just enough to kind of kick it over the end and then brought it back, crashed, crashed it down to 45 after and, two weeks. And how long did you hold it at 45? Um, I think it was at 45 for about a week. And then I, in the fermenter, mm -hmm. um, and then I pulled that out and it's been sitting in kegs in refrigeration um, since May. That, that's the other big key is so. Gary's beer was back from late April, and then this beer was also from May, which is actually kind of surprising for a beer that's only 1046. And when I, are you doing like keg purging? Are you, what yeah. are you doing with your keg treatment? Okay. Yeah, I kind of, um, I kind of followed, I think you were the one that initially mentioned it at one point. I fill it with uh, star sand, and then I blow that out. And then uh, I don't do the, uh, the way my setup is, it's not easy to, put the beer in still under um, mm -hmm. uh, CO2, but um, I purge it a lot after I um, get it into the keg. Yeah. I mean, I still very largely I'll transfer in via an open lid. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I do the same things. And I, I find that that in cold storage is a wunderbar for yep. keeping beer quality. Yep. Uh, all right. So let's look at the judges comments here. This is a very crushable and refreshing beer. The bitterness dominates as expected. If you're looking for improvements, a bit more malt complexity might really take this over the top. But that is a minor complaint. And by the way, that was, uh, that was judged by a professional brewer too, so not yeah. just a Humber judge. Um, the other kind of summation of the notes, uh, floral, perfume, spicy hop aroma. So a lot of the notes about the hops and, again, playing right into that noble characteristic. Um, low malt sweetness with a palate dominated by the hops, high carbonation and a lightly astringent finish. There we go again with that astringency thing here. Although this time I think that may actually be from the hops. A any response to some of those comments or are these in line with what you, what you kind of see in the beer yourself? That's exactly what I see. And, um, it's kind of funny, the whole, uh, malt complexity. Um, when you decoct, uh, pills, you'll get mm -hmm. this, it's hard to describe, but it's a slightly different mouthfeel and a different um, flavor, a richness that you don't get when you don't do that. And it's not mm -hmm. strong, but it's enough that made me wish that I had decocted it. <laughs> John A., you are a Pilsner guy. Yeah, I, I, I got the, the crackery Pilsner malt. The malt was pretty spot on for what you'd expect from a, from a Pilsner. Uh, but I, I agree with Jeff. It didn't have that layer of melanoidin that, that you would expect to get from the very, very best Pilsners. And uh, yet it was, per, you know, it was perfectly fermented. It, uh, the hops were wonderful. It showcased, we had to look them up. But we, we, it, it showcased those hops exactly right, you know, with the tropical flavors and uh, just the right amount of bitterness with the right amount of flavor and, and aroma. And... Uh, it was a well-rounded beer. Thanks. Bernard. Yeah. So there's a lot to say about this beer, actually. Um, so, <laughs> so first of all, uh, okay. So uh, I judged that beer at, at uh, Best of Show and with uh, four other judges. And uh, it was controversial because, uh, because of the hop profile. And uh, we all thought this was a tropical Pilsner. And, uh, but you entered it in German Pilsner. And uh, tropical is not appropriate for Germans. So we had quite a bit of a conversation about that. And eventually, uh, some of our uh, more experienced judges decided to back off. And so that, that's, that's why you, uh, you got the bird. Um, 
So speaking of that, uh, basically, you know, because uh, we knew you were going to talk about this beer, uh, myself and a few people, we went to uh, Ennegren and got some tropical lager uh, so that at least we could taste something that uh, more or less resembles what you had. And um, yeah, so uh, I, I think I thought, I thought it was a great beer, honestly. I thought that uh, as far as the Pilsner is concerned, it was spot on, like John said, like, you know, you got that, that nice crackery uh, malt profile, but it had to warm up a little bit because at first it was cold and I was not getting a lot of that, that, that Pilsner character that I really like. So, but when, after it warmed up, you really started getting it. And uh, I, I love the, the tropical hops or the tropical smelling hops. And it's funny because until right now, uh, nobody has really mentioned that. So, but all of us in the room, we thought like right away, we thought, oh, this is a tropical pilsner. And uh, so I, I just think that uh, it's interesting that, uh, uh, you know, we had to uh, get to best of show to have like that, that tropical E thing s started showing up. It's, I don't have an explanation for that, but uh, yeah, super well done. Thank you. Let me ask, given that you kind of threw this together as an exploration, what would you do differently? I mean, you said decoction. Oh, definitely decoction. Yeah, that's that's really what I'd do differently. Um, I yeah, I'd probably characterize it a little differently than a traditional pills. I wasn't sure how much people are going to pick up on the fruitiness because um, mm -hmm. I am definitely getting the uh, spice and floral kind of dominant, mm -hmm. but I'm definitely getting some fruit there, and um, it's good to see that other people are getting it too. Well, yeah, and it is interesting. Our two professional brewers who judged it didn't say anything about fruitiness, <laughs> although although one of them did call you out on the sulfate level. Yep. And there was a question hanging out there. Chris and Scott asked, oh, what were the IBUs on this? Um, according to Beersmith, because um, I do use that as well. Let me look. It is right around uh, 48 and a half. So it's a bit on the high end. Like a little over one to one. Yeah. So the, uh, what is it? It's. Because what your original gravity was forty six, yeah. Chris has a question out there. Uh, you said that you'd used tap water for the first time. Would you change that as well? It's hard to say. <laughs> Probably. Um, so I used to use Crystal Geyser all the time. Then COVID hit, and it was a disaster trying to get mm -hmm. five gallons, <laughs> let alone forty to fifty that I normally use. So. Um, I think it would make it a little bit cleaner having a uh, lower salt, pro salt profile water and then build it back up. Okay. So I've been kind of toying with the idea of getting an RO system to try and do that just because the water here is just so minerally. And again, uh, for me, it's always the sodium. The sodium always kills anytime I try and do a, a very light character beer without doing something. You're right. Well, Hey, Gary, Jeff, I want to thank you so much for taking uh, part of your Sunday, hanging out with us, having a couple of beers, talking about beer. I hope the club members actually found this useful. Uh, I like talking with people about recipes and the decisions that they've made and why they did it. And particularly here, we can look. I think uh, all of these beers that we talked about today were all 40 plus in terms of scoring. If you've ever done judging or if you've ever been around a competition, you know how hard it is to get a 40 plus beer, right? Um, there, like I'm, I usually consider it, so, consider it to be a good flight if I've got one 40 plus beer in it. Um, and so the fact that all of these were in that 40, I, I think Izzy's was 39.67, which is effectively a 40 anyway. 
40 plus is pretty impressive. And it's always good to hear from people to see what they did in order to make those beers work the way. Uh, before we before we let you guys go, Gary, Jeff, any last comments that you want to make about the the beers or what you do to brewing that you think makes it special? I'd have to say what changed for me was water. Um, going to uh, start out with distilled, and then went to RO water and building it up, and I saw a sea change in my scores, and you know started getting medals in competitions. So I, I think water matters for sure. Absolutely, there you go, Jeff. Um, I'm with with Gary on that definitely. Wait, uh, wait, wait! The water engineer is with him on that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I am. A, I'm not a not a PhD chemical engineer. I'm a bachelor chemical engineer, so almost there. But yeah, it's, it's definitely. Um, I, I remember when I first started brewing. Uh, I didn't realize Crystal Geyser was devoid of ions. I assumed it was spring water, so you'd have plenty of ions. And when I was making clear beer, uh, light lagers like this. Um, they all had this weird taste to them because there wasn't enough uh, minerals. And it was actually Greg from the homebrew store that finally nailed it and got me looking into the water. And yeah, so I've done decade of building up crystal geyser. Now I'm kind of relearning brewing with um, tap water and the games you can do with that to remove calcium to, uh, remove, get your pH right and all that sort of stuff. Thank you so much. I appreciate you taking the uh, again, taking part of your Sunday, hanging out with us and drinking some beer and talking some beer. Thank you everyone for joining us on another episode of the Brew Files. We hope that you enjoyed this look at what makes an award winning beer during a pandemic. I want to thank Gary Elliott of Foam and Jeff Kohler of the East Siders for joining us and the additional input from two of our best of show judges, Bernard LaBelle and John Aitchison. I hope that you enjoyed the additional input now remember if you have show ideas styles brewers techniques ingredients etc you can drop us a line at podcast at experimentalbrew.com you can reach us at denny at experimentalbrew.com or drew at experimentalbrew.com you can find us on twitter at exp brewing on instagram on facebook on reddit and just about every homebrew forum out there and of course you can always find us at www.experimentalbrew.com don't forget, you can support the podcast by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts, click the AHA, Amazon, Brewers, Friends, or BYO links on the website, and by going to Patreon and pledging a buck or two or more to our charitable cause, which for this part of the year is World Central Kitchen, Jose Andreas's uh, Restaurant Support Foundation. They do a really good amount of work that's both for people recovering from disaster, but also right now for the restaurant industry as a whole as they're trying to recover from the pandemic. So, give a buck. Until next time, remember... The brew is out there, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Brew Files. This episode is brought to you by the American Homebrewers Association, a group of more than 40,000 individuals from more than 70 countries who share a passion for brewing and enjoying great beer. Learn more at homebrewersassociation.org. Homebrewers.